Hello and good morning. My name is Will. I'm the curatorial assistant here at the George Eastman Museum in the Department of Photography. And I'm also the organizer of this most recent rotation of works in our museum's the History of Photography Gallery. This rotation opened uh, just yesterday and runs through October 8th. Uh, before we get into some of the photographs on display in this rotation, I'd like to remind all of you that these projects are collaborative efforts that um, take many of the museum's departments and staff members to complete. Uh, this rotation would not have been possible without the work of our conservation team, consisting of Tyna Meller and Zach Long. They treated most of the objects on display. Molly Tarbell copy-edited all of the text labels and Amy Slentz and Amy Shalamano laid them out and designed them. Our museum's object preparation department, consisting of Emily Phoenix, Zach Murray, and Chris Holmquist, framed all of the works and came up with some really ingenious display methods for them. Our manager of exhibitions and programs, Nick Marshall, led his team, Corey Fitzgerald and Chris Holmquist, earlier this week as they hung the rotation and my colleagues in the Department of Photography, Lisa Hostetler, Heather Shannon, Jamie Allen, Ross Knapper, and Rachel Andrews, all offered invaluable advice throughout the planning stages of this rotation. Uh, so many thanks to all of them. Um, like all rotations of works in this gallery, this selection spans the medium's 178-year history and aims to highlight some of the myriad ways in which it's been used. So this rotation looks at the history of photography as seen through images of architecture, which, as we'll see through the course of this discussion, is one of um, the oldest and most popular of photography subjects. The works on display in this rotation range from the official documentation of government-sponsored building projects to experiments in avant-garde art. And the works in the dissertation were made by practitioners ranging from professional architectural photographers to snap-shooting amateurs. The rotation begins with this calotype salted paper print combo. These images were made by John Shaw Smith, who was a wealthy Irish-born amateur photographer who documented the buildings and monuments that he encountered over the course of his grand tour through the Mediterranean between December 1850 and September 1852. John Shaw Smith made these images using the salted paper print process devised by William Henry Fox Talbot. The salt print was one of the most popular photographic processes during photography's infant years, second only to the daguerreotype. It was a positive-negative process, meaning that unlike the unique one-of-a-kind daguerreotype, its images could be reproduced. This was achieved by simply placing the original camera-made calotype negative, this is the object reproduced on the right, in contact with a sheet of sensitized paper. After about 10 minutes of exposure in sunlight, a positive, tonally reversed copy of the negative would appear on the sheet of sensitized paper. Subsequent washing and fixing steps followed to yield a positive print such as the one you see on the left. Although the salt print had numerous technical limitations, it pioneered the concept of making a negative that would later be used to create a number of positive prints. 
this positive negative technique proved to be a practical way forward for photography and it was the basis for most popular photographic processes before the dawn of the digital era. I just mentioned some of the salt prints limitations and one major one was its permanence. Salt prints are very sensitive to light exposure and when you enter the gallery to see these objects in person you'll see that they're displayed under a thick dark cloth. Uh, this cloth isn't meant to intimidate viewers or visitors or discourage them from looking at the objects. It's instead used to protect them from unnecessary light exposure that will eventually fade their images. Uh, because of this, in July, we'll be replacing this image of columns in Baldeck, Lebanon with this church in Athens in order to split up their light exposure over the course of the in addition to concerns over the permanence of salt prints, another limitation of all, photo of all early photographic processes was exposure time. The amount of time that it took to properly expose early photographs could sometimes take minutes, which is an extremely long amount of time when compared to today's instantaneous technology. These long exposure times made it virtually impossible to capture any kind of movement and made architecture one of the few subjects that would stand still for that duration of time. Very, very popular for many early photographers. John Shaw Smith was an amateur. Unlike many other photographers of his era who traveled to the near Middle East for commercial purposes, his photographs were kept for personal use. After his grand tour, he kept his photographs uh, at his home, and after his suicide in the early 1870s, his family maintained possession of them for nearly 80 more years. For many outside of John Shaw Smith's upper class, uh, travel abroad during the 19th century was a privilege that few could afford. However, as the century progressed and the public's appetite for photographs continued to grow, uh, a sizable market for images of exotic, faraway landscapes and monuments began to emerge. These photographs were sold not only to visiting tourists in search of souvenirs to bring back home with them, but also to a new demographic back home that came to be known as the armchair traveler. The studio behind this photograph, for example, sold photographs to tourists in Damascus and cities throughout Egypt but also maintained storefronts in cities such as London, Paris, and throughout the United States. For armchair travelers, these photographs offered visual access to places that they were unable to visit in person, which is, of course, something that we still use photographs for today when we look through travel magazines or Google images of cities we've never visited. If John Shaw Smith can be considered an early example of the camera-wielding tourist photographer, he was one of only a few during his era, when photography was an extremely labor-intensive process that required extensive training and even more patience. However, uh, its ranks began to widen after 1888, when George Eastman introduced the first of his Kodak cameras. Marketed with the slogan, you press the button, we do the rest, the Kodak simplified photography enough to make it accessible to the average person. This marked the birth of popular consumer photography. 
This rotation features a selection of six snapshot photographs made by a group of tourists visiting China during the late 1920s. In the images they make of their travels, the group posed themselves in front of buildings and monuments, although, as you can see here, often clumsily. Uh, remember how hard photography was before you had a digital display to remind you that things were in focus or that everyone was in the frame. They also focused their cameras on famous buildings and sites that they encountered, such as these images of the Summer Palace and Forbidden Cities in Beijing. Uh, of course, it's important for us to remember that the story of tourist photography certainly doesn't end with the introduction of Mr. Eastman's camera in 1888. Today, hundreds of millions of people, such as these Instagram users whose posts I stumbled across on my phone last weekend, share similar photographs of their travels on social media, using photography in much the same way as these tourists to China did nearly a century ago. While the photographs we've discussed so far focus on faraway monuments and architecture, other photographs featured in this rotation um, were made as official documentation to government-sponsored building projects. Edward Balduce was one of the best-known photographers in mid-19th century France. In 1854, he was commissioned <laughs> to document the construction of the new Louvre, which was a series of wings connecting the original Louvre to the Tuileries Palace. Balduce's commission started out modest in scale, but by the time it um, finished up with the new Louvre's inauguration in 1857, the commission had become the largest and most lucrative of his career. When Balduce began photographing the site in 1854, just a few years after John Shaw Smith's grand tour through the Mediterranean, the wet plate collodion process was still a new technology, uh, announced only three years earlier in 1851. The process was a positive-negative one that produced negatives on glass that were significantly sharper and more detailed than the salt print process that had preceded it and which John Shaw Smith used. Until the birth of photography, the task of depicting architecture often fell to the slow-moving and subjective hand of the draftsman or draftswoman. Uh, the albumen prints that Balduce made from his glass plate negatives showed photography instead as a mechanical tool that could swiftly render critical elements of a building's design, such as ornamental detail, surface texture, and a building's proportions. It could do so with unrivaled accuracy and precision, uh, making a strong case that photography had become the premier tool to depict the built environment. As we're going through this presentation, remember that what we're seeing on this screen are reproductions, and that there is no substitute for experiencing objects in person, face to face. When you enter the galleries to see these photographs for yourselves, be sure to compare Balduce's albumen silver print to John Shaw Smith's salt print that are hung right next to each other. Uh, this comparison might remind you that rapid technological innovation has been a constant presence in photography since its earliest years, and that the technological innovation that we see today is more the norm than anything new. 
By the time Balduce began to document the new Louvre's construction in 1854, the project was already six years in and only three years away from completion. Balduce therefore missed the demolition, demolition and building phases of the project entirely and instead focused his cameras on the building's newly restored facades and much of its ornamentation. By contrast, however, when the American photographer Lewis Hine documented the construction of the Empire State Building just 75 years later, he was able to get an insider's view of its construction as it was happening. Uh, it's perhaps not surprising then that Hein, who many of you might know from his photographs of child labor made earlier in the century, um, instead, instead of focusing on the building's sleek design, took a keen interest on the men constructing it. Although Hein's Empire State Building photographs were originally commissioned by the Empire State Corporation for advertisement purposes, Today, they offer a unique perspective on a significant historical event. The steelworker that you see perched to one of the Empire State Building's beams in this image is playfully miniaturizing the Chrysler Building in the background. Uh, this gesture is not at all random. Uh, briefly, for 11 months in 1930 and 1931, the Chrysler Building was the largest, or tallest rather, building in the world. Uh, but Hines photograph from the still yet to be completed Empire State Building uh, was made the year that the Empire State Building overtook the Chrysler Building as the world's tallest. And this was a title that the Empire State Building would enjoy um, until the 1970s with the construction of the World Trade Center. While photographers such as Edward Balduce, <coughs> excuse me, Edward Balduce and Lewis Hine um, chose to document the construction of new buildings. Other photographs in this rotation, such as this one made by Thomas Anand in, 19, in the 1860s in Glasgow, uh, recorded buildings for posterity before they were demolished. During the Industrial Revolution, Glasgow was many it was one of many cities that were that was overwhelmed with rapid population boom. Uh, between 1801 and 1861, the city's population grew by over 500%, and with that growth came some very pressing public health and safety crises. In response, local officials designed the Improvements Act of 1866, which aimed to alleviate some of these issues by widening dozens of streets and raising the worst slums. However, before these sweeping changes were enacted, city officials had the foresight to hire Anand to document the worst affected areas. One of Anand's frequent subjects was the city's claustrophobic alleyways or closes. These alleyways were, were allegedly so narrow that neighbors could reach out of their windows and shake one another's hands and so dark that one couldn't read a newspaper even when standing in them in broad daylight. Uh, for those of you who might be interested in researching Anon and his work in more depth, later this month the Getty in Los Angeles will be opening the first major survey of his work to be held in nearly 30 years, and recently the National Library of Scotland published an interactive website that uses contemporary and recent maps to trace the locations of many of Anand's photographs. When navigating this site, 
it's uh, really amazing to see just how extensive the city's efforts were in clearing entire neighborhoods. Uh, today, the area around close 148 has been completely transformed and bears no resemblance whatsoever to how it did during Nan's time. This, of course, reminds us of photography's innate relationship with history and memory and its ability to preserve scraps of the present for future generations. While Thomas Nan's photographs documented soon to be soon to be destroyed architecture, another photograph featured in this rotation shows a yet to be constructed building. Robert Haar was a photographer employed by the prestigious Chicago-based architectural photography firm Hedrick Blessing. In the late 1970s, the firm received an unusual commission from a real estate developer, photograph a yet to be constructed building in its future location. In response, Haar developed a a complex technique known as emulsion stripping. The first step in this complicated process involved separately photographing a model of a future building in its proposed site and its proposed site from identical perspectives and angles. The first resulting photographs looked a lot like this, which are in our collection but not featured in this rotation. Then, the image-carrying emulsions from each transparency were painstakingly removed, combined, and re-photographed to produce a convincing photo montage. Photographs such as this were used by developers for purposes ranging from presentations to local zoning boards to securing leases or rentals in their buildings before construction began. Uh, for a few years, this technique was a huge moneymaker for Hedrick Blessing and became horror specialty. Uh, however, as the 1980s progressed and image editing technologies such as Photoshop became more and more prevalent, this technique uh, quickly became obsolete. And today you could probably do this in five minutes, whereas an entire person based his career on it for a second. Sorry. <clears throat> Other works in this rotation were made by professional architectural photographers for more conventional purposes. Julia Schulman was among the best known and most sought after architectural photographers in the United States during the mid 20th century. During the course of a career that spanned five decades, his photographs of modernist architecture in and around Los Angeles were widely reproduced in specialized publications and popular magazines where they helped introduce Southern California's distinctive version of the international style to a broad audience. When Schulman photographed Richard Neutra's Miramar Chapel in San Diego in 1957, he did so with his signature knack for softening the presentation of such architecture, which to many was initially considered to be sterile and haughty. Schulman's work helped to change that perception by making it appear chic, light, and dynamic. It's often tempting to take photographs at face value and passively accept the images they show us as unfiltered reality. However, another photograph made by Schulman on that day, now housed as part of the photographer's official archive at the Getty Center, gives us another view of the freshly completed building site. Seeing the building and its stark surroundings in daylight, 
reminds us of Schulman's creativity and some of the problem solving that went into transforming new architecture such as this into something that would win over and detract an ambivalent audience. The photograph on display in this rotation is the best known shot from that particular assignment. And in this image, we can see how Schulman shows Neutra's building at night, perhaps to conceal the barren desert landscape that surrounds it. He uses the building's reflecting pool as a compositional device and balances its artificial light with the sky behind it to make it appear in harmony with nature. And this is, of course, something that you know, his other outtake totally failed to do. One of the final photographs that appears in this rotation was created by Todd Heido, a contemporary artist who rose to photo world fame in the early 2000s with photographs of anonymous suburban homes at night, often seen bathed in the eerie glow of artificial light. While mostly all of the photographers whose work is featured in this rotation aim to document a specific structure by firmly locating it in a particular time and place, Haida's photographs instead function like windows into fictional worlds of his own creation. The homes and buildings that appear in this work can be located in nearly any suburb across America, and his titles, which refer to his own image cataloging system, offer viewers no further clues as to where they may have been made. While the buildings in his work are not rooted in a specific time and place, they do, however, seem to be at the center of their own fictional universes. Haido was born in Kent, Ohio in 1968, and much of his work to date has been inspired by his childhood there. For example, the title of this series, Excerpts from Silver Meadows, references the name of the main street that ran through the um, neighborhood that he grew up in. However, this inspiration is just a jumping off point for the artist, and the real power in his work lies in the untold tales that each of his images seems to suggest. And the viewers in this work have to kind of do a little bit of legwork to fill in the blanks of these uh, kind of untold tales that they seem to suggest. A visitors to this rotation, for instance, um, might study all of the minute details showed in the work to maybe to get an idea of what might be going on inside this trailer or if they were to approach it whether they'd be met with uh, you know danger or more or if it would be a um, place of sanctuary thank you all very much for coming out today um, after we're done here I'd like to invite you all to join me in the history of photography gallery where we can see the other works um, that are on display. The History of Photography Gallery is located right down the peristyle across from the admissions desk. Um, and with that, thank you all for coming out and uh, please let me know if you have any questions.